0: Well, good morning. My name is Chris Majeski. I'm the family pastor. I Also, want to welcome you to ACC. Uh, I'm with Mike. I got my first sunburn uh, this weekend uh, out at ball games, baseball games. We're a ball family. My son plays baseball. My daughter plays softball. Uh, we were out at a field Friday night. We were out at a field uh, this this uh, yesterday, and then if the rain holds off, we'll be out again today. Uh, But I got some some sunburn. I love baseball, always have. Uh, I uh, actually am am a coach on my son's team this year, and so love getting to be involved in it in that way. Um, And we had a particularly difficult game Friday night. Uh, so our team has not started off as well as we had hoped. We're still finding our way, struggling through, It's seeing improvements every game. But uh, we had four rainouts in April, and so uh, we've only had five games at this point. We had hoped to have quite a few more than that. Uh, but Friday night, we, uh, everything was coming together. We were doing great. Uh, we have, we've lost all five games so far, uh, but three of them, three of them have been by one run. We lost by one run. All of those games, we were away We were away. And so if you know baseball, the home team gets the last chance to bat. Two of those three losses were walk-off wins. And what that means is the home team was up to bat. The score was tied or we were ahead. Home team's up to bat. They pulled ahead and the game's over. We don't get a chance to answer back. It's, n- few things are more devastating in sports than having that lead and the other team t- overtaking it and there's nothing you can do about it. It's over. Uh, you missed the opportunity to hold them and, and then it's over. And so Friday night was one of those nights. We were, we were hitting the ball. Kids who hadn't been hitting were hitting the ball. We were making field, great plays in the field, uh, had very few errors. We scored 15 runs. 15 runs should be enough to win a baseball game. Uh, but... We would score, and then the bottom of that inning, the other team would come back and they'd score a couple. We still had the lead every step of the way until the bottom of the seventh when they pulled ahead by one run to win the game and walk it off. Uh, So particularly devastating. The energy shifted in that dugout like that, in that moment. We were so excited. We were anticipating the win. We were so celebrating all those great moments that happened. Uh, and I know I'm a coach. I can say, hey, we, there's still wins here today, guys, right? You know, hey, we had a lot of good things happen out there. We can, we can, we can focus in on the positive, and they're, they're, that's true, right? But the experience of hope and anticipation and then to have it crashed in that one moment, that one hit with two outs that went to right field that scored the final run, it was over just like that, that dashing of our hopes. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to hope and anticipation and then being let down and having disappointment. In fact, when I say that word hope, what comes up for you? Are you a person that hope is something that is exciting, that it's fun, that it's it's anticipatory of something good that you're looking forward to, and, and you believe that something good will happen? Or maybe you're a person that hope feels dangerous, it feels risky, that you've had the experience of getting your hopes up, and then you've been met with disappointment. I think for all of us, there's a mixture in that, isn't there? There's times where we can remember anticipating something good and then getting that thing, and there's times where we can remember anticipating something good and being let down instead. Well, this passage that we're looking at this morning talks a lot about hope. And that's why I'm bringing this up right now, because I want us to understand that when the Bible talks about hope, it's very different from our experience of hope in the world. There's a very big difference between the two concepts of hope that we have as we talk about hoping for things to happen, and when the Bible uses that word hope. And we're going to see that together this morning. Would you join me in prayer before we turn to to Romans chapter 8? So let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this chance to be together this morning, to be gathered here as a community in person and people online, joining together as one body to praise you. And as we've done that through song, we do that now as we turn our hearts to the Scripture to learn from you. Would you open our hearts and minds? Would you make our hearts soft and moldable that we would be able to receive from you and be transformed to be more like your Son? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in Romans chapter 8. We're looking at verses 18 through 30 this morning, and so I invite you to, to look at that. Uh, if you have your own Bible, to pull it up there, but otherwise it'll be up on the screen as well. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. It's a long passage, lots of great stuff here. Let's, let's go ahead and look at it together. Starting in verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present moment. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us. As a foretaste of the future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. Including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father knows, who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many believers and sister, brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. So Paul talking here about, the subtitle here is the future glory. That's this passage is called the future glory. And in verse 18, he talks about how we experience suffering in this life, and this earth right now we experience suffering, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. And he calls it the, the glory that's to come. The thing that is to come is so great that it will make this suffering, this, this, it will it'll make it look insignificant is what he's saying. And then he goes on to talk about some of the ways that we experience this tension in life, this, this groaning of creation and the groaning of us as believers and, and the Holy Spirit groaning as well. And then he comes back to talking about how God has a plan and he is at work in that plan. And so he talks about hope. He talks about an eager expectation. This is what he's talking about here. So the biblical definition of hope, to be perfectly clear when it's talking about this, it's not the hope that we experience in life. It's rather it's confident expectation and assurance. Confident expectation and assurance. When we talk about hope, there is often doubt involved in it, right? I hope I get that job I interviewed for. We don't know if we're going to get it, in fact, there's a lot of things outside of our control. But we have a hope that it will happen, but there's doubt. We know it might not happen. Not so with, with, when the Bible talks about hope. It is talking about a confident expectation, something that will happen that has just not happened yet. Hope is a natural part of the Christian life. It flows from our understanding of who God is and what he's promised. And that's why it's confident that it will happen, because it's based on God and on his character. It's based on him and what he has said, not on, our, not on what we want and what we're thinking and our, and our feeble attempts to try to control things. We can't do that. God can. And so it's based on him and his character and his promises, and so it can be confident. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this. <clears throat> we'll read verses 16 through 19. Now when people take an oath, they call on something greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Sound like a, 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 a relatable experience here? We we've experienced this in life. We we want to show somebody that we really mean what we are to say, what we're saying, and so we make an oath. We make, we're binding this to say, hey, there, there's a there's an added element of security to it. All right, uh, and so that uh, uh, and without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound Himself with an oath, so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that He would never change His mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary so speaking of God here, it's saying God made a promise. And that promise was for our salvation, our, secure, our eternal security, that he would redeem us and bring us to heaven, to him, that he is in control of all these things. He made this promise. And that promise was enough because God doesn't lie and God can, control, and God can, can come through on his promises. But because he knows that we often have promises broken in this life, that people promise things to us and then they don't come through on it, that we promise things and then we can't come through on it, he gave an extra layer of extra security to us. That's for our benefit. Not because he needed it. It was for our benefit. He said, I want you to understand the strength of the word I'm saying to you here. And he made an oath. And he bound himself for that, with that oath. It is impossible for God to lie. This promise, this oath, becomes a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And so this hope that Paul is talking about, this hope that he's talking about is that we are looking forward to the restoration of all things that we are looking forward to the restoration of all things, that someday there will be a better world, that God is in the process of redeeming this world, of of making all the wrong things right, that God is in the process of of redeeming this place and changing it. And the the word picture he uses here is of eagerly waiting, of eagerly waiting, and actually the language is of like craning the neck to see something that's coming, maybe even going up on your tiptoes to see something that's off on the horizon. It's a sure thing, and it's coming, and you're looking to see it as as much as you can because it's too far away, but it's on its way. It's a sure thing that's going to happen, and this is the eager expectation. This is the hope that he's talking about here. The restoration of all things is talked about in in Revelation 21, 3 through 5 perhaps the most uh, noteworthy place that it's referenced in Scripture. It's talking about the new heaven, the new earth, when God restores this world to to, to what it was supposed to be after sin has so ravaged it and and, and caused all this pain and suffering. He's going to redeem it, uh, and it says this, I hear a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That someday God will make everything new and that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All of that's going to be done away with. And the world will be as it should have been. It will be as it was before sin entered the world. It will be restored to its former place of glory. Second Peter 3 also talks about this. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so it's a looking forward to heaven, to a new heaven, to a new earth, to, to all sin and suffering and sorrow and pain gone, to righteousness, to right living, to communion with God. But in the meantime, we have a different experience. In the meantime, we have a tension that we live in. It's the already but not yet aspect of our faith. That God has broken into our world. That he has freed us from sin and death. And yet, we are not fully there. We have a taste of what is to come, but it is not fully here yet. And he uses the analogy of childbirth in this, and I think it's a particularly fitting analogy because in childbirth, we have this joyful thing that's going to happen, this baby that's being born. It's a wonderful thing, but there's some suffering that happens before that. In fact, there's groanings and there's these this, this, this contractions and this pain and this tough work that's done, but at the end, there's this moment of joy. This baby is welcomed into the world. And that's what he's talking about here, is that that is what we live in. We live in that tension, that groaning, that that tough time where there's things that are good that are happening, and there's also a lot of pain and suffering and hardship as well. And he says that there's three ways, that there's three groans that, it, that he uses here. He actually uses that word groan three different times. And it's, the first is that nature groans, that nature groans. Talking about the world around us, the created things, the the... the, the, the Nature, uh, plants, trees, animals, even our bodies as created beings, this, there's, there's, there's this groaning. And it says that in verses 19 through 22, it says this, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so he talks about how creation, about how nature was subject to death and decay. Death and decay. That was never part of God's design. It was never his intent for the world to experience death and decay. The natural disasters that we have in the world, this was not part of God's design. This is a part of, of the fallenness of this world, of sin and how it has, has ravaged our world. And the turmoil and chaos that it introduced. And we see that nature, the destiny of nature, it's tied up with the destiny of mankind. That the plants and trees and animals didn't sin, we sinned and they were subjected to this, this, the effects of sin. And their redemption, the, the redeeming of, of, of nature, the, the restoration of nature, is waiting for the restoration of mankind as well. It's tied up together. And so we are stewards of God's creation. And when, he cur- and when, when we were cursed, the, when, sin, when, when sin entered the world and, and, and humans were cursed, nature was cursed as well. And Isaiah chapter 11 paints a beautiful picture of the restored creation. I'm not going to read it there, but I encourage you to write that down and look at it another time. But it talks about how animals will live in harmony. How there will be no more fighting and, 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 and tension, but there will be peace. That there will be no more hurt and pain, and no more death. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17, again, not going to have it on your screen, but I encourage you to write it down, it talks about how even our bodies are breaking down. Our bodies are a part of the, of, of the nature, the, uh, the world that God created, and they're breaking down, and some of you are aware of that. Some of you know that you have a few more aches and pains than you used to have, or your body is, 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 is not as young as it used to be, right? It's, it's in a process of moving, uh, moving further away from uh, of that, that, that health that it once was, right? Our bodies are decaying. But it tells us that there's this, 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 uh, this tension in that. Uh, look at, let's look at these verses, 16 and 17. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So our bodies are dying, but our spirits are being renewed. This is that already-but-not-yet aspect, right? Our bodies are breaking down like all of nature, death and decay, but then our our spirit, our inner being is being renewed, which leads to the next groaning, the believer's groan. That we, as God's children, groan, longing for the day that everything will be made right. Everything will be made as it should. Verses 23 and 24. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. So it mentions the Holy Spirit there. It mentions that we uh, groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit is part of that already but not yet. It's our deposit. God has placed him with us. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit would be our guide, our teacher, our, 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 uh, 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 the one who would convict us of sin and lead us. That he's going to be our helper and he tells his disciples that it's actually better that he leaves because then he can send the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so the Holy Spirit is within us, and we have this, this aspect of how we've been adopted as God's children, but we're not yet fully there. there is a, there's a, there's a, a, a distance that needs to be covered still. And we see this as he says our, our bodies long to be released from sin and suffering. And so we've received a taste of it, and we hunger for more. This is, why, this is why Paul was able to say in Romans 7, the chapter just before this, in Romans 7 he's talking about how he, he, he struggles. He says, there's good that I know I should do, but I don't do it. And there's bad that I know I shouldn't do, and I do that. He said, what, what a miserable person I am. I've, I've got this turmoil inside of me. He says, who can save me from this? And he says, thanks be to God that it's Jesus who's done that, that Jesus has overcome it, and that Jesus saves me from that. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? That's the groaning. We know that we are not as we should be. Perhaps you know it and you've felt it as you have fallen back in to sinful patterns that you thought you overcame. It's the groaning of the Spirit of saying, I I long to be where I should be, to be redeemed as God's son or daughter. Galatians 5.5 says, But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait, to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. So we received this, this adoption in part, but not in full. And we find ourselves longing for more, and there's the groaning of our spirit for that. And the Holy Spirit groans. In verses 26 and 27, he talks about this. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we, do, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And so that first part there, it says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And what he means by weakness there is he's talking about our imperfection. The fact that as humans, we don't always know what God wants from us. Or we don't always know the good that we should do. We don't always even understand ourselves. And the Spirit helps us in that. And because the Spirit knows all things, because the Holy Spirit is God and he knows all things, he knows the deep things in our hearts that we don't even know, that we've confused ourselves about or aren't even aware of. And he knows how to intercede for us, how to plead with God on our behalf, how to bring our requests to God. I've had so many moments in my life where I've been overcome with grief or sorrow or hardship in life, and I don't even know how to pray. I don't even have the words. They fail me. And I'm a communicator, and I don't have the words, right? That's what I do for a job. I teach, right? And I can't. I don't have the words. But this tells us that God's Spirit pleads on our behalf. He intercedes for us. The Spirit groans, knowing the pain that we're in, knowing the tension that we live in. He, he, he intercedes for us. And so Paul tells us that there is this already but not as, already but not yet aspect of our Christian faith. And we understand that this great thing is coming, and in the meantime, there's there's hardship. In the meantime, there's tough stuff that's happening. But he doesn't just leave us there and say, okay, well, that's what it is, guys. That's your situation. He actually moves on then, circling back to where he started. In verse 18, he started by saying, the suffering now that we experience is nothing compared to the glory that will be coming. The thing that's coming is so great that it will make this stuff look unimportant. It'll be so far, so much better. And he goes there again in verse 28. Let's look at 28. It says this. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. A verse that maybe some of you have memorized, maybe some of you have clung to at different points in your life. A very powerful verse, a very encouraging verse. So powerful to go back to remember that God is in control and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called for his purposes. But let's make sure we understand what this is talking about. It's talking about how God is in control and he is working out his plan. He's in control and he's working out his plan. Sometimes we get the wrong idea with this verse and we think the good that he's working out is the good that we think it should be right? We often equate the good that he's working out to be materialistic or circumstantial in our lives. Like, perhaps you've even heard this, perhaps you've, I've even said this in the past and and have to, to come to terms with the fact that I was off base. Somebody loses a job and you say, it's okay, you know, don't worry that you lost that job. God's got something better in store for you. Now make no mistake, he's our heavenly father. He loves us and he wants to give us good gifts. That is true. But that's not necessarily what this verse is saying. He might not have a better job for you. In fact, the good that he's talking about here might not be material at all. It might mean that there is something deep inside your heart that he sees that needs to be reshaped and molded. And you're going through a painful season because he wants to to teach you that. That he's going to use that to teach you from it. He might have a great job in store for you, but it might be a season of learning and hardship and pain and suffering. Nobody enjoys discipline, but we know that it's good for us and it helps us to grow. It helps us to become the people that we should be. That good that it's talking about here, it's, we're, we're off base if we're defining it as material possessions or circumstances in our lives. God is a good father who loves us and wants to give us good gifts. He does that, but that doesn't, that's not what this verse is saying. The good that it's talking about is first and foremost defined in spiritual terms. First and foremost, it's defined in spiritual terms. And the good that he's working out is his plan, his perfect plan. His perfect plan, the plan that is best for our lives so we can trust it. And in relation to our, our lives, it's our salvation, it's our, our redemption, our, 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 uh, our, our bringing, uh, uh, being brought into communion with him and being brought to heaven with him someday. right? It's our salvation, but it's also our being conformed into the image of Jesus. That he's shaping us and molding us to be more like Jesus, that's the good he's working out for us. And so when I understand this, that God is in control and he's working out his plan, it moves me to gratitude. And I hope it does you too. It moves me to gratitude because it tells me that every good thing that does happen comes from him because he's in control and he's working it out. And so when something good happens, it wasn't just dumb luck. It wasn't just happenstance. It was actually a blessing from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so it moves me to gratitude, to identify the good that he has brought into my life. It also moves me to acceptance, to acceptance. Bad things will happen. We all have to deal with that. And I don't celebrate those bad things. I don't want them to happen. I'm not asking for them to happen. But in the midst of them, I can be calm and peaceful because I know that God is in control. And I can accept what he's brought into my life knowing that he has my best interest in mind and he's going to bring good out of it. That no suffering will be in vain. That he will always redeem the pain and he will bring good out of it. And it also leads me to confidence. To assurance that he has it all under control. That I can't mess up his plan that he will carry it out to completion. That nothing can thwart his plan. And we're going to see more about that next week. Nothing can thwart his plan. So it leads me to confidence as well. Now when I think about this idea of, 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 uh, of God being in control and working out his plan. Of bringing good out of, out of all situations. I think of the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. And if you've grown up in the church, you know Joseph's story, and you probably know where I'm going already with this. But Joseph's story, I'm going to summarize it very briefly here, but Genesis chapters 37 through 50 are where his story is found. I encourage you to write that down and read it another time. But the story of Joseph. So he's one of the sons of Jacob. In fact, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Not a good idea for a father to have favorites, but Jacob did, and he made it obvious. Uh, And it caused some problems for Joseph. In fact, Joseph's brothers were so jealous of him that they hated him. And they wanted to do away with him. They wanted to get get him out of the picture because they didn't like how much favor he was getting and they were concerned that he might get things that they should be getting. And so they they, they, they made a plan to sell him into slavery and to tell their father that he was killed by a wild animal. And they carried out this plan. They sell him into slavery and they tell their father that his beloved son has been killed by wild animals. And he believes it and he's grieved. All the while, Joseph's alive and well. Though well might be an overstatement, he's in slavery, and he's been in, he's in prison during some of this time, and he's been being mistreated over and over again, um, and yet God is with him through it, and he sees that God is with him through it. Uh, he actually rises to a very powerful position in Egypt, where he's a slave, and he becomes second in command, only, second only to Pharaoh. Second in command in all of Egypt. And God has blessed him with, with a vision of what's to come. There's this severe famine that's going to come. And so Joseph has prepared Egypt by stockpiling food and prepared, uh, you know, preparing for, for dealing with these years of famine. And so the famine happens, and he's distributing the food and caring for people, and, and the neighboring countries start to come and ask for help. They're, they're in such need. And guess who shows up at his doorstep? His brothers. His brothers who sold him into slavery. And Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And Joseph sees these people who have caused him so much pain and hardship, who sold him into slavery, who ripped him away from his father and the rest of his family who have, have been the cause of all of the hardship of pain and suffering and mistreatment of, as in slavery and, and in prison, who've been the, the, root, the, the start of all of that for him. And you might think that Joseph wants to retaliate. The tables are turned. Here now, let me get you. You want food and I've got the food? No way. Not going to happen. But that's not what happens. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says this to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good, he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Joseph is able to look to his brothers who cost him so much pain. And he says, you intended, the things you did, you intended to harm me. But God used it for good. And look at all of these people I've been able to save. In Joseph, we see that he was grateful for all the ways that God was working in his life and all the good that God was bringing out of his his situation, and the good that he had blessed him with. We see in Joseph that he accepted. He didn't like it, but he accepted the hardships that came into his life. He was able to forgive and not hold on to resentment. He understood that God was at work, and so he was able to accept it. And we see a steadfast faith. We see confidence. We see a confidence that God is in control and that nothing can thwart his plans. Joseph shows us a picture of what it means to trust God in all things. So as we look at this this morning, as we look at this passage, and we consider the hope that it talks about, this eager anticipation of what's to come, and the tension that we live in right now, Paul is telling us that the journey, the journey is tough, but the destination is worth it. That the restoration of all things far outweighs the pain and suffering that we experience here on earth. But what are we to do with it now? What should this do for us in our everyday life? My hope is that it moves you to worship. That it moves you to worship God as the loving Father who's in control of all things. When you experience the sting of death and decay, I pray that it would remind you that things are not as they should be, but someday it will be as it should be and all things will be made right. And when you experience the pain of your sin and your own poor choices or those of someone else, I pray that you're moved to worship God as the one who is in the work of redeeming us and making us more like his son, that he's redeeming all things, making all things new. Philippians 1.6, I'll end with that. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He's at work. Nothing is beyond his control. No suffering will be in vain. May we be people of hope. Would you stand now as we continue in worship?